Well, open your Old Testament scriptures with me to Psalm 4. It's good to see each of you this morning. Coming up towards the end of summer, you especially feel that when you have children going back to school and already college students returning and everybody getting back to what you think is going to be normal. Isn't that always so deceptive? I'm not sure there is a normal anymore. And... Um, same is true in our family, from last-minute trips and last-minute experiences and enjoying the rest sometimes or the change of pace that God gives us in the summer and then looking forward to living life for His glory again as we move into the end of this year. Um, Bobby and Tennille, is this your last Sunday with us? Okay, so we will be praying for you. I know Sophia is going back to college and a lot of changes for our folks. I know I'm not sure when. Uh, Jacob Petterly leaves, but he'll be going then off to college as well. So we want to pray for our folks and uh, those of us who are just naturally transitioning away or going into the next chapter of their life. And let's pray now as we just sang. That song is a beautiful construction of several different hymns or several different psalms and New Testament uh, verses. And let's just pray in the, in the busyness, even in a Sunday gathering where there's a lot of moving pieces Let's ask the Lord to calm our spirit and hear his voice through his words. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. You are a very present help in trouble. You are the really only true source of joy and peace and security. So, Lord, speak to us this morning in the busyness of life, in the busyness of our own culture and society that we live in, in the hecticness of just living. Would your still, small voice speak to us this morning? Lord, those who find themselves in distress, even from their own sin, may they find hope in You this morning. True rest and joy and confidence in You. Or those who find themselves in distress from external circumstances, from other evil people or situations, may they too find the peace and the sleep that only You can give. Lord, we have gathered in Your name we are not entertainers. We have not come to entertain. We have come to gather together with one voice to praise You and to please You and to hear Your Word rightly divided and to sing truth. We ask that You would do a work in our hearts this morning that we would find that stillness that even as David prayed when he confessed that You would renew a steadfast spirit within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 3 and 4 are both linked to David. And both psalms or songs or praises come out of adversity, pain, and betrayal. That's what's happening. You have these beautiful psalms that are being written by a man 
who has gone through the deep waves of adversity and affliction and even betrayal from his own family. If you just, you're there already, if you just look at Psalm 3, verse 5, this is why many call this a mourning hymn. You'll notice the past tense in Psalm 3, verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. David's in the wilderness, a fugitive on the run, and he finds rest in God. If you look to Psalm 4, look at Psalm 4, verse 8, and that's why these really are a morning and an evening hymn. You'll see that it's not past tense, but it's a future tense. He's praying this in the evening. Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 3 and 4 are sort of bookend meditations for a day when you find yourself in distress. Psalm 3 is a morning prayer, having woken up and you have been sustained by God. Psalm 4 is an evening prayer where you're crying out to Him for safety, where you find rest in God. And again, the context for these psalms, if you look at the top of Psalm 3, it will say that, this happened when David fled from his son Absalom, and you can trace that right back uh, to 2 Samuel. And then you also find uh, Psalm 4 being attributed to David. And Kylan, men like Kylan Dalich and Derek Kidner believe that the backgrounds are the same. This is when David is facing extreme affliction by those who oppose him. I want to give a review of this man, David, because we relate with people, don't we? God has wrapped His redemptive story in people, diverse people, people that experienced all the emotions on the spectrum that's inside of our heart, people that had different power, that were in different circumstances, that were in different countries, that spoke different languages. And God wraps this redemptive story in people because people relate with people, don't we? And it all culminates in one very special, anointed, chosen person called the Messiah. And His name is Jesus Christ. But in this point, out of these praises, it's wrapped right now in David's life. So here's David's life, sort of at kind of 30,000 feet in the air. He's the youngest son of Jesse. He's a humble shepherd boy. He's out in the field when Samuel is sent on a mission by God to anoint the next king. He's going to be one of Jesse's sons. And when he shows up, even God's prophet, Samuel, a godly man, leans towards Eliab, the oldest brother. And David's not even around. I mean, David is almost overlooked. He's out tending the sheep. And young people, you need to know this. You don't have to control the outcome and be at the right place at the right time because God does not overlook His servants. And even when godly men in your life make wrong estimations and they start to evaluate by external appearances, God still chooses properly. And as a matter of fact, he's leaning towards Eliab and God says, no, that's not him. Stop evaluating by the external appearances. And finally, Samuel in frustration sort of says, are all your sons here? Oh no, there's one. He's out tending the sheep. Well, go call him. And he comes in and he says, this is him. David appoints him, David. You cannot be overlooked by God if you remain faithful to Him. 
God sets David apart as the second king of Israel, even though an angry king in rebellion to God still occupies the throne. David, on an errand to his brothers, ends up fighting and killing a giant, which makes him a popular folk hero in his own right. You can almost see the other shepherd boys kind of playing out, David and Goliath, you know, while they're tending the sheep, not knowing that the comparison isn't really between a boy and a giant, but between the second king and the first king, or between the youngest brother and the oldest brother. That's really what the battle of David and Goliath is all about. David's musical ability helped him calm the tormenting spirit that was given to Saul. So basically, David is serving an internship under an angry, spear-throwing king, and he's still faithful to his responsibilities. Saul, after, of course, David kills this giant, and he becomes a mighty man of valor, Saul does not like the new praise chorus the villagers are singing. Remember that song? Saul has killed his thousands, David his... Ten thousands, Saul becomes more restless, more angry. And finally, the first king is killed in battle and David is anointed. David becomes a great king of Israel. But David is a man. And one time on his rooftop, he sees a woman and he believes, wow, how can I be happy without her? And he breaks the tenth commandment. He invites He invites Bathsheba over to his house, which was a colossal mistake, breaking the seventh commandment. He rationalizes, wow, I've made a royal mess, and he did. And so he tries to take care of the problem by eliminating what he perceives as the greatest threat, not his own sin, but her husband, thereby breaking the sixth commandment. This season in David's life gets stormier when God sends a prophet to him, tells him this story that that naturally would grab the heart of a shepherd boy, and he talks about a rich man who had all these sheep, and he takes this little pet lamb from this one poor man, and it grew up with him like a pet, and it used to eat from his own plate, and it was like a child to him, and this rich man grabs this little ewe lamb and cooks it up for a traveler. I mean, you can just almost imagine David's response. As a, as a loving, humble shepherd, That evoked a right response. And so David pronounces accurate judgment. But what David didn't realize before he pronounced the judgment were the characters in the story. And it was David, right? It was David who basically put Fluffy on the menu. Right? Because Nathan says, you're the one. You took took what didn't belong to you. Shortly after that, like the prophet told David, the sword did not depart out of David's home. Amnon defiles his sister. Absalom kills Amnon. Amnon deceives his father. Amnon, or, or Absalom deceives his father and he hijacks the kingdom. And now he's running out of the wilderness. And sin made a mess, doesn't it? Sin always makes a mess. But there's always hope. David confesses and cries out to God after Nathan the prophet tells him what's going to happen. And David says this in 2 Samuel 12:13, Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And folks, that is a great starting place when you have despised and have scorned the Lord's name. I have sinned. And David finds grace in 2 Samuel 12:13. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin You shall not die. 
Okay, and the fuller confession of that is found in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. David is now in exile, a fugitive on the run from his own upstart king's son. He has a fractured family. He faces an, uh, he faces an unknown future. And that's the context of Psalm 3 and 4. Now look at Psalm 4. Here you have a humble shepherd, a giant killing folk hero, a mighty king, but a great sinner, and also one who knew God's great mercy. Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now he shifts his focus from pleading to God to pleading with men, his opponents, his enemies. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. David begins Psalm 4 just as he began Psalm 3 with a desperate cry to God. And in verse 1, you'll see that remembrances of past deliverances fuel his prayers. You have given me relief when I was in distress. David calls back God's faithfulness, His goodness, and he uses a title here that is only used here in Scripture, O God of my righteousness. God does what is right. He knows what is right. And He will respond, He will respond with right actions. You can hear this echoed in his confession in Psalm 51, deliver me from blood guiltiness. See, David is no longer trying to cover up his murder. He cries out to the only one who can help, the only one who can forgive, and he prays, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of Your righteousness. Now he's crying out to God at a later point in his life, O God of my righteousness. God knows the details of your distress. God knows the details of my distress. God knows details of my distress this morning that no one in here knows. And God knows that about you too. And the right response to that is, oh God. It is a prayer of seeming desperation to the God who knows what is right and who will do what is right. The source of David's anxiety, verse 2, people. Does that surprise you? Oh, men. And the Hebrew term used here means men of significance, people in high places, people of influence. That's what's causing affliction for David through their empty words and lies. These people have undermined David's reputation and honor. But he's going to ask them a question, a very searching question. Oh men, or we would say, oh men of great influence, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? It's like a balloon. When you blow into a balloon and it expands, what does it create? creates tension. That's what life does. And it can expand to a point where it actually breaks. 
And what, God, what, what David is looking to God for here is in life's circumstances that are expanding and creating tension, would you give me relief? You have given me relief when I was in distress. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, do not try to fight pride with pride or anger with anger or gossip with gossip. Because he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, however strong your oppressor, however deceptive your accuser, however slithery the one who has harmed you, it's ultimately only God who matters. So David cries out to him. Like we did last week, when we reach a Selah, we're going to pause and meditate on a truth. And we're going to do that right now. And as we pause and meditate instrumentally, if you look at the title of Psalm 4, it says to be played on stringed instruments. So I've asked this morning that our meditations are stringed instruments. This keyboard string, kind of. Here's the meditation. Remembrances of past mercies fuel present petitions. Now, do you believe that? That God will be gracious to you even if your sin has caused the problem. That He will provide relief in your distress. Well, look at verse 3. Psalm 4, verse 3. You have this comparison. It seems to be drawn from Psalm 1 of the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 4, verse 3. But no... Okay, you've just cried out to Him. You've identified the oppressor. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. David is still speaking to his opponents. You need to know this. He knows the way of the righteous. Verse 4, speaking to his opponents. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. You know what began as a prayer in verse 1, answer me when I call, ends up as a statement of confidence. Verse 3, the Lord hears when I call to Him. You have this plea to God and then this faith, this resulting faith. Hear me. He does hear. Then in a series of seven commands, The enemies are called on to respond in a very constructive way. Here are the commands. Know something about God and the godly. Be angry, but do not sin. Ponder, be silent. See, they sinned when they spoke. They sinned when they lied. They sinned when they were deceitful. Ponder, ponder these truths, but do not sin. Be silent. And then he moves in to offer and trust. See, what David wants his enemies to know is that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. 
And Yahweh has promised to come to their aid. And sometimes God designs affliction. As the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept your word. But even amidst his orchestrations of affliction, God is a very present help in trouble. David also communicates that it's a very serious matter to hurt and undermine God's people. Not because they are sinless or perfect, but because they are, ready? They are His. And He is a God of righteousness. And through Christ, He has imputed to us Christ's righteousness. So verse 4, hatred of God's people is always wrong. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. This is wisdom for the enemy. And here's the truth. If God is for you in Christ, if God is for you, Romans chapter 8, then what can be against you? Do you know the answer? If God is for you, nothing can be against you. But see, that doesn't explain the hurt that you feel from evil people or, or, the, or, the, or the psychological extremity from slander. I understand that. But if God is for you with an eternal perspective, if He is on your side, what can really be against you? And what can really harm you? So as we pause and meditate a second time, this will be the only, this will be the last Selah in this psalm. This is what I want us to meditate on. Romans 8, 31 to 34. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the One who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 5, David seems to renew his appeal to his opponents and he actually gives them hope. Isn't this great? Isn't it the way that we love our enemies? Isn't, one, isn't this one of the ways that godly people respond? He's basically telling them, there's a way back to God even for you from where you have strayed. Look at verse 5. Offer sac right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Right sacrifices evidence repentance. This isn't just the external form of offering a sacrifice. This isn't just the Old Testament legalism, if you would. But this is actually offering that sacrifice with its intended purpose that you are believing by faith, turning from your sin and believing in God's provision for you. David says this to his enemies. Offer right sacrifices, evidence of repentance, and put your trust in the Lord and believe in Him. That's what Jesus came preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1, verse 15. Repent and believe. Perhaps there's an underlying exhortation to the godly to not grow weary in their affliction. 
I mean, Paul says this in Galatians 6, Don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you don't faint. It is a temptation when facing difficult circumstances to engage in proper forms of worship. It is, it is tempting when going through dark times to pull away and become complacent and detached and not even want to live a life in community interdependent upon one another. Verse 6, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? I mean, are these the supporters of David who are out in the wilderness with him and they're doubting? Are these the opponents who haven't, who haven't chosen to see the goodness of God in their life? Is this David's own heart rising up and saying, who will show us any good? But whoever they were, David responds by pointing their attention to Yahweh. Notice what he says, verse 6, the second part. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. In the midst of affliction, in the midst of distress, David points them to who? Not to his big problems. Not, not, to, not even to his own innocence. He points them to God, the author of blessing and peace. Here's how David overcomes opposition. He recalls an ancient blessing, the blessing of Aaron, which he probably heard hundreds of times in his own participation of worship, which is taken out of Numbers chapter 6. I'm going to read that original form to you. He says, The Lord make His face to shine upon you, and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. I find it interesting that he quotes this old blessing in the evening prayer. He had already obtained confidence in the morning. Now the evening comes, another day where he's a fugitive in the wilderness. The sun is setting. It's an evening hymn. He's about ready to go down and sleep again. He says that in the text. You have physical darkness, perhaps even spiritual or emotional darkness trying to come over his heart again. And he uses this term of light. This is how you respond to distress. Verse 6, God, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Despondency. Or as one of my favorite ways that Megamind says this, melancholy, right? Melancholy. That's for those who don't want to admit that we're depressed. We're just a little melancholy. Complacency, spiritual lethargy can be cured really not by getting your circumstances changed. It can only be cured by looking to the author of light and blessing, to God. If the face of God would shine upon us, it would lighten our affliction. Now, we're going to move into the last section. This is the conclusion. And the psalm closes with a prayer for inner joy, which is better than any outward manifestation of joy experienced by society. It's better than feasting and a plentiful harvest, right? A good business deal, and it's better than partying. Look at verse 7. Joy and peace at evening. You, okay, this God of light, this God of righteousness who knows every detail accurately about your situation, you have put more joy in my heart 
than they have when their grain and wine abound. By the way, David is writing this, and where is he? Did he all of a sudden get placed back on the throne? Is he back in the palace at Jerusalem? Is he saying this because all of a sudden prosperity has come his way just because he immediately cried out to God in distress? No, he's still on the wilderness. He's still on the run. He has an an unsure future. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Now this season in Israel was always an incredible time of rejoicing if they had good crops and if they had gathered them safely into a dry area and if they had taken the vintage off the vines and everything was safe. Then they would. Re- Can you imagine the, the emotion and the delight? And here's, here's what David is trying to make clear to us. It is possible, even in affliction, to have a gladness of heart greater than the joy of an abundant harvest, feasts, and celebrations. David knew this, so he closes this evening hymn with two expressions, one of calmness, the other of quietness. Look at verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Okay, how can he do that? I mean, understand his context. How can David do that? For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The greatest joy and delight is not in material success, Not in power, not in personal glory, not in controlling a personal outcome of a situation, but in an awareness of the light of God's countenance. And of course, that points to the real and true peace we have in God through His Son. You may close your scriptures. I just want want you to hear two passages as I read them. Jesus came and He taught this. So not only tonight can you lay down and have peace and calmness of heart because in God alone is found confidence, peace, and security, but Jesus came so we can sleep not just without fear of our circumstances and affliction, but we can sleep tonight without fear of eternal death, eternal judgment. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. But 24, if you believe in the Son, you do not come into judgment, but you have passed from death to life. People that know that truth can sleep at night. One other passage I want to turn you to is at at 1 Peter, the end of chapter 2. And you have this example. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, whereas we have. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. As you bow your heads, there are two right responses this morning. One, for unbelievers to believe, to know the peace of God in restoring you to the Father by grace alone through the forgiveness of your sin. And secondly, for believers to endure your affliction by entrusting yourself to God who judges justly. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for sending Your Son even when we were Your enemies, we were sinners. Thank You not only for His example that we should follow His steps, but thank You for His sacrifice for us undeserving sinful people. For by grace we have been saved. Not by our own works that we would boast, but according to Your mercy, You have saved us through the sacrifice of Your Son. Help us to live this out. For those in distress, may the light of Your face shine upon them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.